Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thanks for this night. I pray that you would guide us in our discussions. Thanks so much for this time to sit down and to learn. Teach us together, Father, and help us to apply what we learn to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we're at. And uh, if if you want a little, maybe just an object lesson on the last part of chapter 5, think of Yasser Arafat. Some guys' sins are known beforehand. Sometimes they follow him to judgment. But the thing to remember is that in the end, nobody gets away with anything. You know, no, it, I don't know, there's something about what, what's it so fascinating about the Scott Peterson trial? Tell me. He's never going. He's probably does anybody here trial, really care? Is it still going on? Yeah, does anybody here really care? Yeah, I don't. I, don't I mean, how many murder trials are going on in the, in the United States right now? Innumerable. Why are, we, why are we so focused on that one? It's a big circus. They make dramas out of I was going to say, that will be But it's like, who cares? I mean, made for TV. Yeah. He's not going to get away with anything in the grand scheme of things. I know Greta spends an hour every night. Greta's on. I mean, I don't know what she'd do if it wasn't for Scott Peterson. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, court TV, they talk about it all day. My husband I mean, man alive. I, it comes to a point when it's enough. I don't care. You know? I didn't know this was But the point is, nobody gets away with anything. And what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 5 is before you elevate someone to an elder, which is a position of great responsibility. Make sure they're qualified. Take your time. You don't need to be in a hurry to do that. Um, it doesn't mean that you keep putting insurmountable goals in front of you know, the old catch-22. But there needs to be a, an appropriate time where this man has been examined, where he's been seen, and where it's obvious that he is qualified for that position. Because being an elder is a position of great responsibility. All right, and one of the things that that we are called to do as members of a church is to support our pastor. Um, that's something God's going to hold us accountable for. Now, that's not blind loyalty. That's not blind loyalty. You follow the pastor as the pastor follows. Christ. It's not a blind loyalty. It's not, okay, whatever the pastor says, I'll do it regardless of whether it's right or not. No, you don't do that. You follow him as he follows Christ, and you're loyal to him. There's a loyalty. That's one of the things we're missing, you know. I keep thinking about about this whole concept of relationship, you know, and our relationship with Christ, and that the real, I guess, um, what I call it a paradigm of, of uh, 
that, that probably best describes our relationship to God is that of a relationship. And one of the components of a good relationship is loyalty. You're loyal. Love is loyal. If someone says something bad about your spouse, you don't put up with it. Um, when someone says something bad about Christ, how do you respond? When they make accusations against God, how do you respond? Defend. You know, we should defend because, hey, that's my friend. You don't talk about my friend that way. There's a loyalty there. And in the church, we need to get, exhibit a loyalty to the pastor. And that's something that we don't have in the United States anymore. We have a nation full of people that will rip you to shreds over the least provocation to make themselves look good. Don't enter, and that's what Paul said. Don't entertain an accusation against an elder except by two or three witnesses. Be slow and examine it. And if they are found to be in sin, then they are to be rebuked before all. But take your time. Make sure it's right. Don't just listen to anything anybody says and go along with it. Because that's what we have today. One of the great distresses, I think, and I think we've seen this out borne out in the in the national election that we've just had. Anybody can say anything. But is it true? What we have in America today is you can say anything about anyone, whether it's true or not. It's an allegation, right? So and so alleges. Well, is that true or is it not true? If it's true, we need to deal with it. If it's not true, we need to retract it. But nobody wants to retract anything. You just throw out enough dirt and hopefully some of it will stick. Allegations. Don't entertain as Christians, we should not entertain allegations against other Christians or against our pastors and our leaders. Don't don't entertain it. Don't listen to it. If someone makes an allegation, they gotta back it up. If they're found to make an allegation that's not true, what should you do to them? They should be dealt with. They should be dealt with. Don't make an accusation. Be careful. Before you say something, make sure it's true. And if you're wrong, you need to apologize. You need to make it right. You need to withdraw your statement. Paul is saying, protect the elder. But if the elder is found to be in error, you need to deal with him. And they need to be rebuked before all, that everybody may fear. The idea there, you know, we have this, what Paul's trying to say there is, no double standards. I charge you for God, the holy angels. No double standards. No, no two rulers. What we have today is we have two rulers. If a pastor does things, we treat him differently than if a person does it. Or, and even in the church itself, we treat different people differently. Mr. Big Bucks, who gives a lot to the offering, is treated a little bit better than somebody else who doesn't have as much money. We show respect of persons. Paul says that's not to be the case. And if anything, the elder is to be treated or to be dealt with a little more severely because of the influence that they have. The more responsibility you have, the more accountability you have. Any more thoughts on that before we pick up with chapter 6?
I take a swig of my coffee. <laughs> Chapter 6, let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. Uh, Paul is talking to bondservants. Now in those days, what was a bondservant? A slave. A slave. Slavery was... Um, common in the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. Do we have any parallels to this today? Well, our apprentice system would have been similar. Yeah. You sell yourself. Do these verses apply to us to do that today? Yes. How? Well, they will be loyal. We're to be loyal to who? Our employers. Yes. Now today, the difference between today and then is that if we don't like our employer, we could we could go hire ourselves out to somebody else. We had the right to do that. But the principle here is is I think a timeless principle: bond servants or employee. If you're under the yoke, count your own employers worthy of all honor. Why? Because they're worthy of it. They're worthy of it, but what does he say here? <coughs> Nobody can say anything against you. If you go around, and I've known this, Christians go around, I am a Christian, I'm a Christian, and you look at their work record, and it's abysmal. What does that say? doesn't mean you're the perfect employee, you know, it doesn't mean you never make a mistake or anything. But if you're known for your sloth, or you're known for your incompetence or your, your, you being a difficult person to work with, how does that adorn the name of Christ? Does it? No. I remember a few years ago when I worked at a former place of employment, one of the men came up to my boss and said about a man who was going to our church. My boss and I and this other guy came, went, all went to this church. And uh, he came up to my boss and he said, um, you know, I, you ought to talk to this third guy. It wasn't me. It was another guy. So you ought to talk to him because he's being a real pain and he's almost on the verge of being fired for being obnoxious and just a difficult person to work with. And I know he goes to your church, so maybe you can talk to him. Now, this guy that said that was a Mormon. So what do you think the Mormons think of our church? Not very positive, is it? And I know this guy, and he was an obnoxious pain in the you-know-what. He was very difficult to work with. What does that say about Christ? Yeah. Here's the point, folks. All of us in here have a cause that extends far above our own interests. We have a purpose for doing things that extends beyond what's in it for me. We are to adorn the doctrine of God. We are to make Christ look good. We're to make our friend look good. 
and we as employees do not do a good job when we take advantage of the system at work or we don't put in a day's work for a day's wage we do not make Christ look good and Paul is telling bond servants make your masters look good and those who have believing masters let them not despise them because they are brethren what does he think what do you think he means there don't take advantage of your boss if he's a Christian now what I find interesting is of the last four bosses I've had three were Christians and I remember the second man I worked for I told him I said listen I don't want you to treat me any different than anybody else if I screw up I want you to treat me the same as you treat anybody else I don't want to take advantage of you being a Christian and me being a Christian. I don't want to take advantage of that. And if anything, what should you do to those who are Christians? Be more loyal. Work harder. Don't take advantage of them. Because see, in those days, the system was worked. You tried to take advantage of your employer or your master in this case. And you know that your master is a Christian and he's not going to do certain things, you could take advantage of that. And Paul is saying, don't take advantage of your masters who are Christians. Rather, give them honor as your master. Rather, serve them because they who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. When you serve a godly master, it benefits them. They're a Christian. Don't, what do you want to, how do you want to treat other Christians? Or how should you want to treat other Christians? yourself well do a good job do diligent work and again it, it doesn't mean that you're perfect you know it doesn't mean that that you never make a mistake I had a hard day at work today I felt rotten I probably shouldn't have gone to work Moen did probably Moen probably did not get their money's worth out of me today all right there are other days when they get it and then some. And it's a pattern over a long term. When somebody thinks of you, do they think good employee or bad employee? This is particularly evident, you know, like at Ford plant. You know who the good employees are. You know who the guys are that call off on Monday morning because they've been out drunk as a skunk all weekend. You know who they are. You know the ones who call off on Friday? You know the ones who call in sick, but you know they're not sick. They're out fishing or hunting. You know that. I was just going to say, you know, I read Galatians 3.22 every day. Uh-huh. Before I go to Ford Lord. And what's that say? It says... I know what it says, but I want everybody I else to know what it says. It says, slaves obey your earthly masters and everything and do it. Not only when their eyes are on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reference for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since mm -hmm. you know that you receive an inheritance from the Lord as your reward. Yep. And we get daily follow up. And this, this dovetails right into that. It's the same thing. same thing. And Paul repeats it, so Peter repeats it. This is repeated several times in the New Testament. Be a good employee. Be the best employee you can be. 
the best you can do. And we all know, we all know who the good employees are and who the bad ones are. Because it's easy as an employee to say, well, you know, why should I work hard? You know, and that scofflaw over there isn't doing anything, and they're getting as much money as I am, and they're not working. Hey, who are you? Colossians, who does it say you're working for ultimately? You're working for the Lord. You're not working for that guy, you're working for the Lord. That's why you have to look at it being a Christian. Yeah. That's why I look at it. That's the way you should look at it. For a long time, it's so difficult. Yeah. You're, you're representing Jesus Christ in the way you work. All right? And the whole idea there is to adorn the doctrine of God, to make it acceptable, to make it, to make it attractive. Here it says, so that the doctrine may not be blasphemed, spoken evil against. <clears throat> People can't say, well, you know, you say you're a Christian, and you're, you're one of the laziest guys on the line. <clears throat> no, that's not the way it should be. We should be diligent, good employees. And part of being a good employee is not causing your employer problems. Not being a pain. Not taking advantage of the system. Um, one of the reasons, to be honest with you, one of the reasons I stayed at work today is because I have a simple rule. If I'm not at work, I'm at home in bed, I'm at the drugstore, or I'm at the doctor's office, or the hospital. Those are, that's where I will be. If I call in sick, I, I can tell you where to find me. You will not find me on a golf course, you will not find me in a store, you will not find me shopping, you will find me at home in bed, or you will find me at the drugstore, or the doctor's office, or the hospital. And if I call off sick in a day, I don't go out at night. So my principle would have been, if I call, if I'm too sick to work at Moen, I'm too sick to teach this class. Mm -hmm. You remember some of those here last year, there's one day when you got a phone call and I, I was too sick to work, teach. And you know where I was? I was home in bed. You could have come to my house and I'd have been in bed. That's, a, that's one of the principles that I've adopted. Because I've known so many people, they call in sick, and they're not really sick. If you call in sick, make sure you're sick. Don't take advantage of the system. Be a good employee. Honor your employee. And I think it also here means treat them with respect. Treat your employer with respect. Now that sort of goes against, and you know, if I step on toes here, I apologize. That goes against the whole union mentality of us versus them. Now I'm not saying unions are bad. Don't don't say I'm, I want to break the union. I'm not saying that. <clears throat> All right, but I am saying that there is a a tendency in the union mentality. It's us versus them. And we are going to take advantage of every little thing we can of them. How should you respond to that as a Christian? You work in for right? Mm -hmm. how, how would you? How should you respond? Do you think? It's not right. It's not right. Now, if you've got a contract that says you do certain things, right? What should you do? You abide by the contract. You abide by the contract. But you could show the management 
honor. Because you know what? I'll be honest with you. If it wasn't for the management, you wouldn't have a job. Right? If some filthy rich guy named Henry Ford didn't create Ford Motor Company, you wouldn't be working. You have so many people that do abuse the system. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pathetic. You know. But as a Christian, you're not to abuse the system. You're to, you, you know, you're to abide by the labor contract, whatever it says. You to abide by that. But you can treat management and the foreman and whatever, whoever it is, with respect. Yeah. Because I remember, you know, in my younger years, I had a couple of different jobs, and it was very evident that, uh, you know, the people, the labor, just despised management. And it's like, don't you realize if it wasn't for management making sure that the budgets are met and the things are done on time, you wouldn't have a job. That's the old school. Most few companies are getting away from that now. Most of them going to MOA's modern operating agreements where management and union are actually working together. Yeah. That's what it should be. That's what it should be. But as a, you know, as an individual, we're called to honor our employer. And if you can't honor your employer, get another job. I tell this one person on my job, you know, I know a lot of people looking for a good job. This person works maybe two days out of the week. Goes on medical every summer. And gets away with it. Every summer on medical from April to September. What is what does the Bible say that we're to do? Honor our employer. And they're going to give an account of that, you know. Yeah. We serve them well. And he's telling Timothy, teach and exhort these things. Verse 2. Teach and exhort what? Teach your employees to honor their masters, especially the believing ones. And if anyone... Now, teach and exhort these things. What do you think that's referring to? The things that were mentioned before. Which include this, but a lot of the other stuff as well, right? It's not just this thing. Because then the next verse doesn't make sense. Because what's the next verse say? If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the doctrine which accords with godliness, He's proud, knowing nothing. What's the contrast here between? What's he contrasting? I would say with ungodliness. That's the product. Okay. That's the product. Mm -hmm. What's producing the product? <clears throat> Teaching, right? Goes back to chapter 1, right? If you don't consent to wholesome words, what kind of words are those? Healthy, hygienic, sound words. Some versions might have sound in it. You see, if someone teaches other than what we have taught here, 
other than what godly teaching is, is teaches. Wholesome words, even though what? Words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how can you get any better than that, right? What did Christ teach? Those are the kind of things we teach. And of the doctrine, the teaching which accords with godliness. So here's the point. You've got doctrine that comes from Jesus Christ, the words of Jesus Christ, and which produces godliness. Mm -hmm. Right? There's teaching that produces godliness. Now, if someone does not teach that, what does he teach? Error. Mm -hmm. And what is error? Well, what is the character of the guy first? Mm -hmm. He is proud knowing nothing. Now, I'll tell you what. I've ran into a lot of them in my life. I ran into a lot of them. I had a man who taught Sunday school class with me for years. One time he was my best friend. And uh, he loved to talk about the scripture. He'd argue about anything in the Bible. Got mad at the church, left the open door. Three years later he left his wife, married some other woman, living in adultery. Has him in the church. And I think now he goes to his brother's church, and his brother's church is one of the most liberal churches in Sandusky. What's he like? What is he? He is proud knowing nothing. He told me one time, he says, Alan, he says, you know, the only person who can teach Bible better in this church than me is you. I want you to think, just think what he said. Just think, what did he say? I didn't take that as a compliment, by the way. So That's like saying you're bragging on how good a teacher he was. Proud knowing that. You know, I'd never compare myself to somebody else. That's not my responsibility. You know, I'm, I'm thrilled to death that I can do what I do. I hope I do as best I can. But I wouldn't go around saying, well, you know, I'm the best teacher. Open door. That's proud. That's, that's arrogance. That's, you're proud knowing nothing. If the, and here's the point. You know, this goes back to, the, to, to, to maybe theme, the B theme of the book. How many people love Star Trek? Anybody love Star Trek in here? I used to. Oh, it's horrible. It's culture. You gotta learn to like it. But every Star Trek episode has an A plot and a B plot. It's just like CSI, right? You got the A plot, you got the A crime and the B crime, right? Well, the A plot in Timothy is what? What's the theme of the book? 315. That you may know how to connect yourself to the house, God, church, and God, pilgrims, ground, and truth. What's the B plot? The B plot is false teaching, particularly good teaching as opposed to false teaching. And Paul is saying you can pick out the good teachers. The good teachers produce people that are godly people. And how do you mark godly people? Godly people are marked by following the words of Jesus Christ. And the doctrine, the teaching that produces godly 
holy character. And the false teachers are marked by arrogance, pride, vain janglings, wranglings about stuff that doesn't matter, and they produce people that are not godly. By their fruits you shall know them. What is he? He's a proud, knowing what? Nothing. Wait a minute. He's intelligence, right? He, I mean, he can argue. I used to have some wonderful discussions with this guy that used to teach with me. He's one of the most stubborn, bullheaded men I've ever met on the planet. He loved to argue. He loved to, to spar. He always had to win the argument. And I asked him, I said, why do you think, you know, why do you always have to win the argument? Well, I'm always right. Okay. What is he obsessed with? He's obsessed with disputes and the arguments over what? Words. Now, what Paul is saying here, let's understand. Are words important? Yes. Yeah. It's not just enough that you believe in Jesus. What Jesus do you believe in? It's not just important that you believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. What do you mean by that? So it's not that he's saying words aren't important. What he's saying is these guys are arguing over minutia, over things that don't matter, over stuff that is irrelevant. Just to argue. Just to fight. There are people that key in on some little picky item, minutia of doctrine, and that's all they can talk about. And that's all they want to fight about. And all, every time they talk, they got to bring that up again. They make themselves off as some great, wonderful person. That's not godly. That doesn't produce godliness. They're obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. That's what it says here. It's not over doctrine, is it? Over words. It's like sitting around in your deacon board meeting, trying to spending three hours arguing about how how. Uh, how long the skirt length can be on the women that attend your church and forget about if Christ is God or not. What does it matter? Or argue about whether you should go see a movie or not. And if you go see a movie, which movie? And maybe we should have an approved movie list. And how much is alcohol? Uh, we don't want you to drink. Does that mean you can't drink NyQuil? I mean, there are people who sit and fight and argue over this stuff for all, all day long. Does it produce godliness? No, it doesn't. It produces confusion, chaos. These people are arrogant, proud. They don't know anything. They should shut up. And it goes, I mean, really, he's, he's bracketing his whole argument here with what you see in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Where it talks about um, verse 7, or verse 6 from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. What's idle talk? Gossip. Well, it's gossip, but it's just 
It's talk that doesn't go anywhere. How's the weather? Well, the weather's fine. How? It's it's talk that doesn't go anywhere. It has no useful purpose. Okay. Designed to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things they affirm. There are people that want to be the teacher. They want to be the expert, but they don't know what they're talking about. They're to shut up. Because what they're doing is not producing godliness, it's producing ungodliness. And how do you how do you know, again, how do you know what to teach? Well, it's the words of Jesus Christ and the doctrine which cords godliness, which produces godliness. And what is godliness? What does it mean? We we say godly, what does it mean to be godly? What is that? Character of God. And how would you best understand what the character of God is? Where would you find that? Well, in the scriptures, but particularly in whom? Christ. So how did Christ act? How did Christ act? You know, think about this. Everything Christ said was right. Every theological position he had on every issue was right. How did he how did he how did he comport himself being right all the time? Humility. 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 The hardest thing for a person to do is be right and keep their mouth shut. Because you always wanna dig. I only do that when I'm at home watching Fox News Channel and Donna has her hearing aids out so she can't hear what I say. <laughs> when I call people things on the TV, I know they can't hear me, but it makes me feel better. You know, because I, I don't want to keep silent, you know, when I know I'm right, right? I don't want to shut up. I don't want to not say anything. But the whole point is, Christ is humble. Christ, people love to be around Christ because he treated them with dignity, with respect. They were amazed at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And when sinners came along, he didn't kick them in the teeth like the average Baptist pe preacher does. And he was right about everything. And he had 12 buffoons following him around, right? Disciples that didn't get it. Well, think about it. They didn't get it, right? And compared to Jesus Christ, every one of us is an idiotic, blathering moron. And yet, how did he treat people? That's godliness. Being like Christ. Treating people with respect and compassion and mercy. We want... We, we need to treat people that way because that's the way Christ, that's what Paul is saying. And when you have someone who's teaching stuff that causes division and is fighting about little minutia that doesn't matter, it's like Christ said, you know, you guys fight over how many dill seeds you're going to give to God and you've forgotten about justice and mercy. It's not that you're not to worry about your tithe, it's that the tithe is irrelevant in respect to these other more important things. 
What 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 does these guys what do they produce? Well, arguments from which come what? Envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions. Envy, what's envy? Jealousy. Jealousy. I want you know, oh he's he's he sounds a little bit more he sounds a little better than I do. Strife, what's that? Well that's fighting. Reviling, what's reviling? Name calling. Can you believe that idiotic doofus that said that? And you know, you're pointing to somebody you're you're arguing with. The ad hominem argument. Evil suspicions, what's that? Being suspicious that Anything somebody does is always evil. Yeah, no matter what they do, there's some ulterior motive. Yeah, you read things into what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Now, that, now, what does it say about love? Love is kind, mm -hmm. gentle. It thinks no mm -hmm. evil. It's not that it's naive. It's not saying that. It's just saying it's not always ascribing the worst possible motivation of evil. Useless wranglings. What's that? Fighting over something that doesn't matter. There's no purpose. These are of men of corrupt minds and destitute. What's a corrupt mind? Two words Jerry Springer. <laughs> a corrupt mind is a mind that can't think right. It's programmed wrong. It doesn't understand the truth. It can't discern what is important and what is not important. There are some things that just aren't important. And we all understand that there are varying degrees of things that are important in our own lives. It's important that my heater work in my car but it's a whole lot more important that the brakes work. And if I have to pick one, it's going to be the brakes, not the heater. And the same thing in biblical truth. There are things that are very, very important, and there are things that it doesn't matter. And part of Christian maturity and part of godliness is knowing what is it that you need to fight over. What, what, what is the most important thing to worry about? And not worry about a lot of this stuff that really doesn't matter. You know, Christ could have gone around and he could have walked up to any person alive and he could have told them exactly what their problem was and how to fix it. Did he do that? No. No, he didn't. And it says here they're destitute of the truth. Does that mean they don't have the truth? Why? Because they don't have the words of Christ. They don't have the doctrine that affords godliness. And out of that, they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, I'll tell you what. It doesn't take a Phi Beta Kappa to look at the boys on TBN and know exactly where they line up on this. To them, what is Christianity? 
It's a means of what? Yeah. Gain. Gain. It's a means of gain. And quite honestly, what, what's the problem in our society in America? Greed. Greed. What's in it for me? So when you present the gospel to Americans, what do you? What's the danger that you do? Sell the good parts. You got to sell them, right? <laughs> you sell the good part. Now you can't. Now in selling the good part, you can't say, you know, you're damned. You're on the way to hell to fry forever in fire. That's not very positive, is it? It's not very positive to tell a person, you know, God hates you and he's, he's commanded you to repent. No, he has a love, he has a wonderful plan for your life, or whatever, you know. We want to sell it. The gospel is not a commodity to be sold. And we've turned it into a commodity. It's not a commodity to be sold. Jesus Christ is not standing on the corner like one of those guys in the Salvation Army ringing his bell, hoping that you drop your life into the bucket. He's God. He commands you to repent. And being a Christian is not, gee, what can I cash in on? If anything, it's a denial of self, isn't it? Rich young ruler comes running up. What must I do to be saved? Well, go keep the whole law. That's the wrong answer, isn't it? But Christ gave him the wrong answer, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, why, why did he answer him that way? He knew he wasn't going to do Because it, Christ right? knew his heart. Yes. It's not that that's going to save the guy. He's trying to get the guy to realize, well, I've messed that one up. What did the guy do? Said, I've been doing Got that. that. <laughs> been doing that all my life. So Christ said, well, I'll tell you what. Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. Now, is that going to save you? No. No. What was Christ trying to get at in this guy's life? What's he trying to get the guy to do? Yeah, how bad do you want this? How bad do you want this? And are you willing to do what I tell you to do? Are you willing? And he wasn't willing. Christ was not selling the gospel. Christ was raising it up as a most valued treasure. In fact, he said in the parables in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a pearl of great price. And what did he do? He sold everything he had to buy that one. Mm -hmm. And it's like a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field. And what does he do? Sells he sells everything he has to buy the field to get the treasure. Mm -hmm. There's an abandonment. These guys see religion and teaching as a means of personal gain. It could be financial gain, it could be pride, it could be arrogance, whatever. It's a form of gain. And what Paul is saying is that gain and godliness don't go together. You get one or you get the other. 
Peter really hits on him in Second Peter chapter two. He talks to the about false teachers. Say these have gone after the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. Who's he? Who's Balaam? The prophet for hire, right? Yeah. The mule had now that's bad. That's really bad. Yeah. <laughs> but what was Balaam's sin? He was for hire, like you said. Yeah, King of Moab comes and says, I'll tell you, you know, go curse him. Can't do that, God won't let me. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this and this and this. Can't do it, God won't let me. And if you read the original um, narrative of that, you get confused because after a while God tells him to go do it. See, I don't understand. Why would God tell him not to and then tell him to go? Well, it wasn't it wasn't that God wanted him to originally go, but Balaam wanted to go and God finally you ever do that to your kids? I want to do this, I want to do this. No, it'll hurt you. I want to do this. I want to finally say, okay, go do it. And what happens? They hurt themselves. Alright. Balaam was a prophet for hire. And he couldn't curse Israel, so what did he do? He blessed them. But then what did he tell the Moabite king to do? Hey, go back to your kingdom and get a few babes. Send them down into the camp. And when Israel commits fornication, God will judge them and kill them. And you know what happened? That's exactly what happened. It worked. It worked. And God judged Israel. And later on, when Israel took the land, one of the first things they did was they put to death Balaam, who was a prophet for hire. Listen, folks. What's it say verse in the end there? From such, withdraw yourself. Don't watch TBN. You don't need to. It's healthy for you. To not watch these guys nonstop beg for money. Mm -hmm. They drive their Rolls Royces, their Cadillacs, they live in their mansions, and they live off little old ladies on pensions who somehow think that they're giving money to God when in fact they're giving it to people of corrupt minds. Destitute mm -hmm. of the truth. Peter calls them filth scabs. You know what a filth scab is? It sounds disgusting. It is disgusting. It's a boil. It's a scab on a boil. He calls them hidden reefs. What's a hidden reef? You go along the water real nice, and all of a sudden the bottom of your boat's ripped out by something right underneath the water. You don't see it until it's too late. You say they're like dogs going back to their own vomit. You say they're like wells without water. You know, you're crawling across the desert. You're dying of thirst. You come to the well. It's dry. He says they're like clouds without water. What's that? Well, in the middle of the desert, the clouds are coming. Wow, we're going to get some rain. It goes right over. Nothing happens. They're like wandering stars. You get the impression that the Bible doesn't have a whole lot of nice things to say about false teachers. And Paul says, from such, withdraw yourselves. Don't expose yourself to these guys. Stay away from them. Now, godliness with contentment 
is great gain. What's the gain? Not, not money, right? What's the gain? Contentment. Contentment with what? Whatever God gave you. The great gain is godliness, not money. The great gain is godliness, not prestige. These guys like to, you know, they like to sit up on the platform. You know, they like to be Mr. Big Brain. We're going to have Mr. Big Brain speak to us today. And they go on for 15 minutes giving all the, all the accomplishments of this guy. Listen, that's not the kind of people you want to follow after. From such, withdraw yourself. Because they're not producing godliness. Stay away from them. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and certainly we can carry nothing out. That's an axiomatic truth. You came into the world naked, you're going to leave naked. No, they're not going to put me in that coffin. Arafat died. He's got $12 billion in the bank. Well, that's doing him a lot of good, isn't it? <laughs> they said he had $800 million hidden somewhere. Oh, he's got, he, they say he's got up to $12 billion. Some people say he's got up to $12 billion. Billion. You know how much money $12 billion is? You couldn't spend it. Not even the interest. You couldn't spend $12 billion. If you spent a million dollars a day, a million bucks a day. It would take you 36 years to spend $12 billion. And it's drawing interest every day, so. You'd never spend it, folks. Soros was trying to. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's Arafat's money doing him now? Nothing. Wives you didn't take any. You didn't bring anything in. You ain't taking anything out. What do you take out? Yeah, you send some stuff ahead, don't you? You send some stuff ahead, but that's it. Doesn't matter what you are in this life. It's irrelevant in the <coughs> eternal scheme of things. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. content. I find it fascinating to, you know, listen about, you know, these movie stars and all of this stuff. Uh, they have a lot of press on Paris Hilton. You know, Paris is the, I guess, the heiress of the Hilton Empire. You know, and, uh, you know, I look at that and I say, you know, she'll never be happy. It's impossible. Think of some others, Britney Spears. You think she'll ever be happy? They're so empty. They have nothing. Mm -hmm. See, well, <laughs> they got all that money. <coughs> so what? Mm -hmm. I'm happier than they'll ever be. Because it's not what you have, it's not things, mm -hmm. it's relationships, it's people. You honestly think somebody's going to marry Brittany for her, her personality? I don't think so. I doubt it. 
She's married, though. A good example of that, I saw this profile once on biography, was Christina Onassis. And she made it to age 37, but she was never happy. And she was heir to how many billionaires? Onassis. It was a horrible life. She was never happy. No. Because godliness with contentment is great thing. And if you have food and clothing, be content. I know too many people that don't. Yeah. Yeah. We live in a society that tells you to get more and more. In fact, they have you, now people get so much they got to store it in you store it sheds. <clears throat> Someone said there's said when you buy a boat, the, the two greatest days in your life when you buy it, when you get a boat, is the day you buy it and then the day you sell it. <laughs> Because it's a boat anchor, no pun intended, around your neck. I know people have boats, and where are they every weekend? Well, they're on their boat. Why? Well, I got the stupid thing. I might as well use it, right? I've got a boat. i got to be on the boat. Well, can't you go? No, i got to be on the boat. You know, i got all this money sunk in this. Well, the boat owns them. They don't own the boat. The boat owns them. Or they don't own the camper. The camper owns them. problem in our society is we don't own things, things own us. And people are not content. You look at the TV, nobody's content with anything. Bigger car, better clothes, bigger house, more money. Paul is saying, you know, for a Christian, if you have the necessities of life, be content. Yes. I was thinking the other day, you know, money can buy any food on the planet, but it can't give you an appetite. That's true. Right? Mm -hmm. It can buy the best bed possible, but it won't make you sleep at night. I do uh, in text, I, I do a couple of charter work, boat captains, you know, that's part of something they do. One of these guys, he just keeps buying more boats. I mean, his, his wife has already left. I mean, he never seems happy. He's always worried about what he's got in that, you know, every penny, every, I don't even know how he, he's only in his 40s, you know. Oh. It's just, uh, it's amazing to see that kind of lifestyle. And, and you're, you're really never happy. You're always looking behind you, you know. <laughs> you want to you have more than the next guy. Yeah. You never have enough. Would Somebody asked Rockefeller, how much money will make you happy? He said, yeah, just a little bit more. <laughs> I had to be, you know, like Arafat. You're like, what are you gonna do with twelve billion dollars? You're seventy-five freaking years old. And you got twelve billion dollars. What are you gonna do with it? Just knowing he had it. Just knowing you have it. I mean, it's like Scrooge McDuck, McDuck in his money bin, right? <laughs> he never spent it, but just to be able to swim in his money was yeah. all that made him happy, you know. <laughs> I'm laughing because I felt Scrooge McDuck. Scrooge McDuck, you know, and it's like, what are you going to do with this? Paul is saying as believers, if you have food and clothing, shelter, be content. That's something, you know, that's a lost virtue in the church. People in the church can't give to the church. They can't give to God's work. Why? Well, they got you know, triple mortgage on your house. Why do you have triple mortgage? Well, you know, I got to pay for the boat. 
What do you need a boat for? Well, the guy next door has one. I mean, it's that mentality. You know, we get we get caught up in this this grind after things. Okay, isn't it too how you are raised? My my daddy got killed coming home on furlough. An eighteen wheeler killed him. My mother was a young widow, and so she taught me from the time I could understand what money was that this is something we don't have a lot of, but we have food, clothing, and we have a roof over our heads. Mm -hmm. So, well, her father would send her food, but he didn't have any money to send. Mm -hmm. So, I grew up. If we had enough to eat, a warm bed to sleep in, and a roof over our, over our head, that was, that's heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I think I, I think you're right. You're I think you're right. You look at the average snotty-nosed 12-year-old kid nowadays. You know, he's got his aquarium with his exotic fish. He's got his combination CD, TV, whatever. And if he comes down to supper and he doesn't like what mom cooks, she'll give it to the dog and cook him something he likes. And he, you know, the world is the world exists to make him happy. And then he gets out in the real world and finds out, you know, it ain't that way. And he, he can't be content. I'm very content with everything. I, I have a car fetish. But everything else, I have no problem. <laughs> I have no problem. Well, we know what her no. sin is now. All right, yeah. we'll remind her. I do. All right. <laughs> it's, it's obscene, uh, really. But, but, but you know, I know we can get a Hummer when we can afford this Hummer. <laughs> I'm not trading in that other one to get a Hummer. <laughs> oh, man. No trade, no trade. I, I'm not making an effect on this yes, woman you here. Are. <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, I Paul is saying be content because it comes from God. Be thankful for what God has given you. And if He's given you a Hummer, be happy. It's no problem. And if he's giving you a little Volkswagen Beetle, be happy. But it was a gremlin. You know, you got gremlin. I drove a 72 <laughs> Buick Riviera till 1986. And all of the, remember all that it was made by? All the chrome was off of it. The wheel wells were. And Clarence got embarrassed that, uh, that was, and that was the good car. Oh. <laughs> and he was embarrassed that I was driving this to Goodrich. He says, we got to get another car. And I said, well, this one's fine. Oh, well. So, but, the, you know, it's yeah. all in perspective. It's what you can afford. Yeah. I want all this stuff, but I Well, that's the problem today. People are in, in debt to get it. I love that move, that, that commercial work. You know, the guy saying, I'm up to my eyeballs in debt. I love that commercial. That is great. You like my car? It's new. You like my house? It's new. I even belong to the local golf club. How do I do it? I'm up to my eyeballs in debt. You know, that's, that's America. You know, that's America. Um, and and it's, it's, it contradicts the godliness. 
it's not wrong to have good things, but when you're up to your eyeballs in debt and you can't, you know, it owns you, you're, you're, you're out of whack. You're out of whack. Because what does Paul say? But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. You want to be rich, you're going to compromise, compromise, compromise. It's destructive. You want to be rich, you're going to sell your soul. We see that in America today, people selling their soul. You know, it goes back to the whole gambling thing, going to Las Vegas to sell your soul for money. <coughs> Greed. Just to have more. For the love of money is the root of all evil. The love. Know what it says there. It doesn't say money is. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. He's talking to people in the church, the, the pursuit mm -hmm. after things. Mm -hmm. Now they had the same problem back then that they do now. Yeah. But the pursuit after things. Money, wealth, prestige, power. The bigger car, the bigger house. Mm -hmm. You don't need all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that's one of our greatest lessons there in Ecclesiastes. That's what Solomon's trying to tell us. Mm -hmm. Solomon <laughs> says, I had it all, man. I had all the money you could imagine. And it doesn't give me any satisfaction. At the end of the day, it's emptiness. I have nothing. What's it do to live in the biggest mansion alone? Nothing. Paul is saying, don't follow after that. False teachers follow after money. And he says, not only do they follow after it, their teaching can cause other people to follow after money. He who, he, he who dies with the most toys does not win. He still dies. And you didn't take anything in, bring anything into the world. You're not taking it out. Arafat did not wind up in hell with $12 billion. He wound up there naked by himself. What he had in life was irrelevant. But you, O oh man of God, Timothy, you, mm. but you, what's it say? Oh man, of God. You can be a man of the world, you can be a man of God. Now as Christians, are we insanely rich? Yeah, not down here, right? Not down here we are, but up there we have everything. We're joint heirs with Christ. We get everything he gets. Think of that. You, O oh man of God, flee these things. What things? Flee it. Now, now, what does he mean to flee? What is, what's the idea of flee there mean? Give me a word picture for flee. Uh, you got a lion run running after you, and you got to run faster mm -hmm. than the lion. Yeah. Run for your it's not a mosey. 
Don't mosey away from these things. Don't take a short little walk away from these things. Flee. Run. Don't get near it. Flee these things and pursue what? Well, righteousness. What's righteousness? Character. Right thinking. Right actions. Godliness. Acting like God. Faith. Love. Patience. And gentleness. All of these are virtues. These are, these are in direct distinction and contradiction to the virtues of the people who pursue money. Someone who is pursuing money, do they pursue gentleness? No, no, no. I mean, I mean on a scale of 1 to 100, where does Donald Trump rate on the gentleness scale? Oh, zero. Yeah, he's down at the bottom of the scale, right? Everybody admires Donald Trump, but he's one of the most ungentle characters you'll ever run into. See, his wealth is in distinction to the virtue. Is he a patient guy? I don't think so. No. One of the best places to see impatient people is on an airplane. People are impatient. They don't want to put themselves out for someone else. The point is, you pursue money, you pursue gain, you pursue prestige and wealth and power, you run you run away from these. It's on it's on the opposite end of the scale. You can't have all of it. Isn't this if you're obsessed with such? Yeah. You know, I mean, this is yeah. ever present on your mind. More, yep. more, more, more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, you really want to work hard and save. You want to work hard and retire. save, yeah. but you take what God has given you. You bet. And, and you don't compromise hard. your values to get more. No. Wouldn't think of. No. And I think here's another thing. All of us here and here should know when enough is enough. When do I have enough? Do I really need that new car? I'm not saying whether you do or not. You have to ask yourself when's enough enough? Do I really need a bigger house? Do I really need this particular item I'm thinking of purchasing? Do I need that? Maybe you do. Have at it. Do I really need this 86th pair of shoes if you're a woman? I got three pairs. Do I really need, you know, this this uh, new set of golf clubs or whatever? I'm not saying, I'm saying we all need to ask ourselves that question. Do we really need it? Fight the good fight of faith. Timothy, fight the good fight. Now, what two words appear there? Fight. Fight and fight. Mm -hmm. It's a fight and you got to fight it. Mm -hmm. See, the point is, being a Christian is not lollygagging into the kingdom, you know. <laughs> it's not tiptoeing through the tulips. It's a fight. It's a... Mm -hmm. It's a battle. And you gotta fight yourself. You gotta fight the evil one. You gotta fight the world, but it's a constant fight. Mm -hmm. And the who's the biggest enemy you gotta deal with? Self. Yourself. Oh. You gotta fight yourself. Yes. That's the worst enemy. Oh. 
Fight it. Lay hold on eternal life. How do you lay hold on to eternal life? What about this once saved, always saved business? Where does that come in? Is it true that once saved, always saved? Yeah. Sure. So why is he telling him to lay hold on eternal life? Well, Timothy, you're in, right? Keep it, keep it in mind. Yeah. Yeah, keep it in mind. Keep the pursuit there. And don't, don't take it for granted. That's right. And I think it's the same. You know, keep in mind that just life is not all there is. No. There's something after. There's eternal life. Do you want the money now? Or do you want it later? Anybody read Pilgrim's Progress? Paul Bunyan? Remember the that uh, he was in the interpreter's house, I think it was, and the two kids were brought in, and one they were, one was given a pile of money or whatever, and he was just flaunting it and just having a great time with it and holding it in the face of the other one and just sitting there patiently. Remember what the interpretation of that was? Some people get it now and they blow through it and then they have nothing. Other people wait and they get everything. As a Christian, we need to wait because we're going to get everything. And he says, uh, Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. To which you were called. What, does he think, what do you think he means by called there? The effectual sovereign call of God to salvation. You were called. And see again, for those who are still struggling with this whole concept of election and free will, what you see here is both. God effectually calls you, but then what do you need to do? You need to lay hold, and you need to hang on, and you need to fight the good fight. There's no thing here about, well, if you're in, you're in. If you're not, you're not. If you're in, fight the good fight. Lay hold. Hang on to it. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Jesus Christ who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment. What commandment? What commandment do you think he's talking about? Is it a general commandment or all of it? All of it. Hang on to what you've been taught. Keep the commandment. The confession of Jesus Christ. What was the good confession of Christ? He persevered all the way through to the end, right? You do the same thing. Lay hold. Hang on. Don't let go of the good confession. That you keep this commandment without spot blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. What do you mean without spot and blameless? What do you think that means? Perfect? No, no not perfect, is it? But what are we to be? Spotless and blameless. And that word, that's also used over in James. We're called to be spotless and blameless. Hang on to it. Pay attention to it. 
See, here's the thing, folks. You've been given eternal life. Someday you're going to inherit everything. Act like it. Right? Act like it. If you spend your entire life burning your health out to get things down here that you're going to leave here when you go to heaven, that's kind of stupid, isn't it? Because someday you're going to get it all. Why do you? Why pursue it down here? You're not going to take it with you. Get an eternal perspective on things. Lay a hold to what's ahead. Hang on to it with a good confession. Be spotless and blameless. Don't get sidetracked in the stuff of this life. Who don't don't listen to those who think godly that that gain is godliness. That's not right. Rather, gain is holiness and contentment. And whatever God's given you down here, be happy with it. Someday you'll get more. Someday you'll get a get better, but whatever God's given you here, be happy. Be spotless and blameless until the Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Which he will manifest his, in his own time. What's it, what's about his appearing? What's it mean there by his appearing? What's going to happen at Christ's appearing? Yeah, what's going to happen? What do we get? We get our reward, right? If you walk out of here today and you get run over by a Mack truck, you go to heaven, right? But when do you get your eternal reward? At his appearing. That's when he squares the accounts. Paul is saying, our treasure is yet to come. Hang on to it. Pursue it. Um, live with eternity's values in view. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Would Arafat win? He won hell. He won hell. And given his life, he won a pretty hot spot down there. That's his reward. Doesn't matter how much money he had. Doesn't matter how many people loved him. Doesn't matter how many kids would strap a bomb and blow themselves up just because he said to do it. That doesn't matter. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Paul is saying, Timothy, you're called to a higher calling. You're called to heaven, man. You've been called by God. Pursue godliness. Hold on to it. Grasp it. Don't let go of it so that when Christ appears, you will be spotless and blameless. which he will manifest in his own time. He, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of Lone, who alone has immortality, dwelling in an unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. This is just a praise to God who is utterly unlike anything we can comprehend or understand. What does it mean he dwells in unapproachable light? The glory, right? 
the blazing, brilliant glory of God. If you were to die tonight and you were to go to the heaven, and not if, but you would go to heaven, hopefully, and you were to stand before the throne of God, what would you see? Blazing, brilliant light. Unapproachable light. God is holy. This is, this is the one who's going to reward you. He gets all the glory, all the credit. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Those who are rich, how do they to act? Humility. And don't trust in what? Riches. Uncertain riches. Notice all riches are uncertain. Um, while I was on down in Tennessee, it was fascinating. I was watching a special on the 1929 stock market collapse. They were talking about how ships in the ocean they had they had wireless in those days, and one of the first uses of wireless is with these all these millionaires to call in their stock quotes while they're out at the ocean. And they talked about this particular ship that docked in England. The guys got on the boat, multi-millionaires. By the time they got to America, they had nothing. Stock market had collapsed. They lost everything. Uncertain riches. Don't trust in them. Don't trust in them. You can't. The stock market talks that. Let them do good and be rich in what? Good works. Not money, but good works. Ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. To use their money to invest in what? Eternal, eternal things. Eternal things. O Timothy, guard which was committed to your trust, avoiding profane and idle bamblings, in contradiction of which is falsely called knowledge, by professing it some of strayed concerning the faith. Again, hang on to sound, healthy doctrine. Avoid the drivel. Avoid the drivel. Well, we're out of time there, so let's stop there. And... Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.